This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. We're in a series entitled, You Asked For It. Over the past several weeks, you've been submitting questions, uh, curiosities you've had about God, the Bible, life, and uh, we are taking time each Sunday to answer one of those questions, and we're not going to be able to answer all of them. Uh, but uh, what I'm going to do is uh, take another subset of them and blog on those. So you can check that out if you would like to see uh, uh, further reflections on some of the questions you've asked. I was encouraged to see the questions asked about the topic of idolatry uh, for a couple of reasons. The first is idolatry is by far the most frequent discussed problem in the Bible, without question. Idolatry is the most frequently discussed problem in the Scripture. So I was encouraged to see the questions asked about that because as soon as someone asks a question about that, they are asking about uh, large chunks of Scripture and a theme that you find from Genesis to Revelation. The second reason I was encouraged uh, to see the questions about that is uh, it hits on our vision. The vision of our church is captivating generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. Our vision says what it says because the scriptures say what they say about idolatry and its solution. Idols pretend to be able to deliver what only the gospel can. So I was encouraged for these two reasons to see um, questions about this, but I understand that modern people still are a little foggy when it comes to our understanding of idolatry because as soon as you hear the word idol, probably most of us think of ancient people bowing down to statues. I'm going to encourage you to think about this differently this morning, and we're going to do a deep dive into this topic. Even in the Old Testament, bowing down to statues wasn't the only manifestation of idolatry. Speaking of Israel's leaders at the time in Ezekiel, an Old Testament book, take a look, 14 verse 3, God says, these men have set up idols where? In their hearts. So idolatry isn't just a visible behavior of the body. It's an invisible posture of the heart. We're going to look at that today. Here are the three questions I want to ask and answer. What is idolatry? How do we know something is an idol? And how can we be freed from them? What is idolatry? How do we know something is an idol, and how can we be freed from them? First question, what is idolatry? Let me, let me throw us into the New Testament to, to lay a base work, a foundation for idolatry. Paul, speaking in Colossians 3, says, Put to death, therefore, what, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Okay, Paul says, covetousness is idolatry. It's very interesting. This word covetousness in the original language means possessing an inappropriate desire for more or an uncontrolled desire for more. It's having an inordinate craving for something. 
The language of desire is used to describe this particular form of idolatry. Desire lies in the human heart. It may manifest itself in a number of different visible ways, but it exists first in the heart as idolatrous desire. Now, in, in, in describing the human condition, the universal human condition, Paul in Romans 1 summarizes the problem of idolatry. He says this, they, human beings, exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Now, it's not that created things are bad. When God created the cosmos, he declared all of it to be exceedingly good. Created things are not bad. The problem of idolatry occurs when created things receive from us what only God should. We have a propensity to worship and serve created things rather than the creator. Or to use the language of Paul in Colossians 3, human beings are prone to possessing an inappropriate or uncontrolled desire for created things above and beyond their desire for the creator. This is what makes idolatry so slippery and conniving and subtle. See, it's not that idolatry means having an inordinate desire for something that's bad. Idolatry means having an inordinate desire for something good. In other words, often with idolatry, it's not what we want that's the problem. It's how much we want it that is. That's idolatry. Second question, how do we know if something is an idol? I'm going to spend a lot of time on this part. Let's use Genesis 29 as a case study. How do we know if something is an idol? Genesis 29, starting in verse 16. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than some other man. Not the greatest compliment in the world. Stay here with me. So Jacob served seven years to get Rachel. But they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Okay, now to put this bluntly, Rachel is drop-dead gorgeous. And Jacob is more than smitten with her. Robert Alter, who's regarded as a first-rate Hebrew literature scholar, says the text signals Jacob is lovesick and overwhelmed with Rachel. So beguiled with her is Jacob that he volunteers to work for Laban for seven years, which at that time was an astronomically high price to pay for a bride. But according to verse 20, those seven years seemed only like a few days. Then verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to make love to her. Alter, reflecting on this, says this verse is bald, graphic, and overtly sexual for ordinarily reticent ancient literature. The writer is showing us that Jacob is overwhelmed with sexual longing for this woman. 
Now, you probably remember how the story goes. Laban ends up tricking Jacob. Instead of giving him Rachel, he gives her Leah, Laban's other daughter. After Jacob realizes the trick, he ends up working another seven years to get Rachel. So Jacob worked 14 years for his bride of choice. With idolatry, it's often not what we want where the problem lies, but how much we want it. So Jacob's story, the question we should ask ourselves is, what am I willing to do to get that created thing? What am I willing to do to get that created thing? Paul sees idolatry as worshiping and serving created things rather than the creator. You see that happening in the story of Jacob and Rachel. So how do we know something is an idol? Well, ask yourself the question, what are you willing to do to get that created thing? Let me try to flesh that out a little bit. When Paul entered Athens in the book of Acts, it says that he was disturbed by all the idols that he saw in the city. Undoubtedly, one of the things Paul saw in, in Athens was a shrine built in honor of Artemis, the goddess of fertility and wealth. Now, we may not burn incense to Artemis, but when wealth becomes an object of inordinate desire, we do perform a kind of child sacrifice, don't we? Don't we? When wealth becomes an object of uncontrolled desire, we perform a kind of child sacrifice by neglecting family. To go after professional achievement, to gain greater wealth. Now, money and professional achievement aren't inherently evil. Paul doesn't say money is the root of all evil. He says the love of money is the root of all evil. Money and achievement are good things, but when they become objects of our inordinate desire, we start performing sacrifices in order to get those things. With idolatry, it's often not what you want that's the problem, but how much you want it. So what are you willing to do in order to get that created thing? See, when something has become an idol, we start breaking rules we once honored. When something becomes an idol, we start breaking rules we once honored. Why are there countless stories of once honest people now caught up in tax fraud or tax evasion suits? They once honored the rule of tax law. Now they don't. Why? Money and the status or security that comes from having more of it has become an idol. What are you willing to do in order to get that created thing? When something becomes an idol, we start breaking rules we once honored. When human approval is an idol, we would rather lie to someone than tell them the truth and risk losing their approval. It's not what we want that's the problem. It's how much we want it that is. And when some good thing becomes the object of our inordinate desire, we start breaking rules we once honored in order to get that thing. Let me tell you something. Idolatry is the greatest challenge facing your marriage. Idolatry is the greatest challenge facing your marriage. Idolatry is the greatest challenge facing your kids. It's the greatest challenge you face in your place of work. And idolatry is the greatest challenge facing any church. Think about that. More often than not, 
idolatry is the root cause of church conflict and church splits. Most church splits over the history of Christianity have not occurred over cardinal doctrinal truth. That's just not the way it's gone down. Most church splits have occurred over personal preferences that became the objects of inordinate desire. Now, those personal preferences may be good things. They may be good things. But when they become the object of inordinate desire, people are willing to break rules they once honored in order to get that preference met. They campaign in order to get others on their bandwagon. All of it in violation of the dozens of verses of Scripture pointing out the commitment Christians must have to preserving the unity of the church. With idolatry, it's often not what you want that's the problem, but how much you want it. What are you willing to do to go get that created thing? When something has become an idol, we start breaking rules we once honored. Here's another test to apply if you want to find the idols in your life. Observe how you respond when you don't get what you want. How do you respond when you don't get what you want? Follow the strong emotions and you'll find the idol. Emotional extremes are indicators of idolatry. Anger, despondency, debilitating, anxiety, all of those point to our idols. How so? Well, let's review. Idols are created things that are often good things. But when good things become the objects of our inordinate desire, they take on an idol status. In other words, like Jacob, we passionately love them. When something or someone you passionately love is threatened, how do you react? We'll either act in, react in anger and despondency or debilitating anxiety or some combination of both. James wrote about this. In the book of James, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, here's what he said. What causes fights and quarrels among you? He's writing to a church. He's saying to them, look, what causes fights and quarrels among you? You hear the emotion in those verses, in those words? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires, literally inordinate cravings? Don't they come from your inordinate cravings that battle within you? You have an inordinate craving, but you don't get it met, so you kill. That's hyperbole, by the way. The church is not dealing with the homicide problem. They tear each other up with their tongues, ripping each other apart with their tongues. You have an inordinate craving for something, but you don't get it, and so you start bickering. You covet but you can't get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Follow the strong emotions and you'll often find the idol. Anger, despondency, debilitating anxiety often point to our idols. John Calvin, reflecting on this verse, said this. He said, if everyone had observed moderation, they would not have disturbed and annoyed one another. They had their conflicts because their lusts were allowed to prevail unchecked. Now, Calvin's putting his finger on the key to battling our idolatry, which I'll unpack in a moment. He's putting his finger on it. The word moderation should be a buzzword for all Christians. In fact, if you're taking notes, write this on the top of them. 
all created things in moderation. All created things in moderation. Calvin says if they had observed moderation, they wouldn't have fallen into this stuff. But because their lusts, their inordinate cravings were allowed to prevail unchecked, that's why they had problems. That's why they had their fights. See, with idolatry, it's often not what you want that's the problem, but how much you want it. Moderation lies between indifference on one end and inordinate desire on the other. Now, look, to sum this up, to sum it up, let me use, I'm going to use Steve Hoppe's paradigm. Steve Hoppe contends, and I think convincingly so, that all created things will be for you either God, garbage, or gift. God, lowercase, garbage, or gift. Every created thing you have a relationship with will fall into one of those three categories. They'll either be for you a God, garbage, or gift. Several weeks ago, I talked about a woman in my previous church who had come to speak with me about her daughter. Her daughter had wandered, not wandered, but had in open rebellion turned her back on God and and the family. And, you know, dealing with prodigal children can be a devastating thing to have to live through. But for this mom, it was more than devastating. It was much more than devastating. She lost her job as a result of it because mentally and emotionally she was absent when she was at work. She was unable to perform her tasks. And her marriage was now crumbling because she was not present with her husband. See, for her, what status had her daughter taken in her life? God. Her vision for how she wanted her daughter's life to be and and where she wanted it to end up had taken on the status of God. And her waywardness destroyed her. Absolutely destroyed her. Now, what if her daughter was garbage to her? How would she have reacted? A couple of possible ways. She could have reacted with indifference. If she's garbage, she'd shrug her shoulders. She wouldn't care. Her prodigal child would have negligible impact on her life. Now, what if her daughter was not God nor garbage, but seen as a gift? How would she have reacted to her waywardness? In contrast to garbage, I'm sure there would have been tears. There would have been grieving. But she would not have become non-functioning in life. She likely would not have lost her job. and She definitely would not have sacrificed her marriage. Created things will be for you God, garbage, or gift. Which category they fall into can be detected through two questions. What are you willing to do in order to get it? And if I can smuggle in a corollary question, what rules are you willing to break and sacrifices are you willing to make to get it? And the next question is, how do you react when you don't get it? When you don't get what you want. Follow the strong emotions and you'll find the idol. Third, how can we be freed from them? Let me offer three practical ways to do that. Number one, you have to identify them. 
We can't be free of something we don't know we have. A significant part of our problem in 21st century American evangelicalism is our blindness to our idolatry. We don't generally do this kind of inventory in our lives. We don't think through what created thing has taken on idol status in my life. We don't think through what created thing has become a God to me. We don't do that kind of reflection. And that's a big part of our problem. You have to dive into your inner being and find what are those places of allegiances that are too strong. What are you willing to do to get the created thing? What rules are you willing to break? What sacrifices are you willing to make to get that created thing? What are your strongest emotions directed towards? When are you angriest? When are you most despondent? When are you most anxious? Let me risk being vulnerable here for a moment. I hope this will help. For a long time, for me, human approval has been an idol. For a long time. Uh, I know this because of the rules I've been willing to break and the sacrifices I've been willing to make to get it. A few years ago, a woman loaned me a book that she wanted me to read. A month or two later, she asked if I had read the book. I said yes. I hadn't. I hadn't, I hadn't cracked the cover. I lied without hesitation. I looked her in the eye, and I lied. Why? Why was I willing to break a rule I once honored of telling the truth? I feared her rejection. I feared her thinking less of me. If I told her the truth that I hadn't read the book, I would risk losing her approval, her praise. I would rather lie and have her approval than tell her the truth and risk losing it. That is idolatry. Now, if you really want help with that, ask a loved one. Turn to your loved one and say, honey, what makes me miserable to be around? Love, when am I most unpleasant? Give them permission to be brutally honest with you. I triple dog dare you. We have to identify. Second, we have to confess idolatry as sin. The healthiest Christian life we can live consists of making all of life about repentance. Confession of sin is an often missing discipline in the Christian life that needs to be brought back into our daily routines. Daily routines. Confession of sin is nothing more than agreeing with God that sin is sin. It's cosmic treason. Confession is verbalizing that agreement with God. In Psalm 32, David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. Why? 
He answers that question. Why is he going to confess his transgressions to the Lord? Because when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Ray Ortland, reflecting on this, wrote this. He said, people living with unconfessed sin groan. They groan about this. They groan about that. But really, they are admitting that they have sins still unconfessed. Third, rub the gospel into your idolatry. Use myself as an example. This idol of human approval has been a battle for me. I have to learn daily to rub the gospel into it. One of the things that I discover when I rub the gospel into my idolatry of human approval is that the biggest problem I have is not the criticism or rejection of people. That's not my biggest problem. That's not my greatest threat. The gospel shows me my biggest problem is with God, not people. I am a sinner deserving of God's just wrath. The greatest threat I face is not the rejection of people. It's the rejection of God. But we have a tendency to get this backwards, don't we? And upside down, people are huge and God is tiny. The gospel shows me God is huge and people are tiny. But the gospel tells me more, doesn't it? It tells me and shows me the lengths God has gone to in order to accept me and bring me into his family. Through the cross and resurrection, I'm no longer an object of God's just wrath. Through the cross and the resurrection, I have God's acceptance. And when God is big and people are small, God's acceptance of me means more to me than any pain, human criticism, or rejection can possibly inflict. Or as one pastor put it, when I have the smile of God, all other frowns are inconsequential. When I have the smile of God, all other frowns are inconsequential. You want to be freed from your idols, you've got to learn to rub the gospel into them. We need to identify them. We need to confess them as sin. We need to learn to rub them, rub the gospel into them. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks and praise for your word to us that shines light onto our idolatry. Even now, we want to confess those to you for the sin they are. Our hearts are idol factories that turn even the best things into ultimate things. God, you alone deserve our best desire. You alone should be the object of our inordinate craving. I pray we would learn to rub the gospel into our idols. Idols are filled with empty promises. Only in the gospel, God, can we find what our souls need the most. I pray we would, you would help us to build our lives on that alone. We ask these things for your glory. 
and the good of your people.